she burst, if that's the right word, into the consciousness of New York theatergoers while settled into a ratty barca lounger and went on to create indelible portraits of a Midwestern crafts guru, an unwitting co-conspirator in a mysterious and dangerous corporate office, a child swept into a parallel world, and she's now appearing as the ultimate controlling mother in the classic musical Bye Bye Birdie. Welcome to the American Theater Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing, and I'm pleased to welcome Jane Howdyshell. Hi, Howard. Hi, Jane. How are you? I'm very well. So Bye Bye Birdie, as has been spoken of and written so many times, is one of those shows that it seems everyone of a certain age did in high school. When did you first encounter Bye Bye Birdie? Uh, well, as a kid, I saw a high school production, but I never did one myself. And of course, I grew up watching the movie. And so I had an awareness of it that way. But I'd I'd never had any direct relationship to the show until two years ago when uh, the roundabout asked me to participate in a workshop for Bye Bye Birdie. And um, I did that. And uh, we worked on it for two weeks, and I had a great time doing it. So I was really pleased when they came back to me and asked me to be in the current production. When you first encountered the character, do you do you like this character, or do you think this is a comic character who you know isn't going to be liked? Uh, well, it's interesting. I. I, you know, I, on the page, she looks kind of dangerous that way. But as I started working on her in the workshop, and then when we did the presentations, and I realized actually how audiences respond to her, I thought to myself, oh, this is like Archie Bunker in a mink coat. You know, I mean, <laughs> I don't know how Carol O'Connor did what he did in creating that role, but it was a phenomenal thing. I remember when that sitcom came on TV and here was this xenophobic, racist, seemingly horrible, narrow man um, that all America fell in love with, you know, and it was because he was so kind of naive in all of his awfulness and uh, he ultimately kind of uh, won people over despite what he would say and what his attitudes were. And um, and in my experience of playing Mae Peterson, I kind of have the same uh, deal happen. You know, the audience seems to – if they hate her, they love to hate her. You know, it's it, – and there's something – Ultimately, you kind of you kind of feel bad for her in the end too, because she's her worst fault is her undying devotion for her son. You know, I mean, you can't fault her for not loving her son. So um, there are redeeming qualities to her. So I don't dislike her. <laughs> you mentioned having seen the movie, and indeed, for many people. The movie is a touchstone. Had you seen the movie recently in any way? Were you looking at at that film performance? I had not seen the original film recently. It's been years and years and years, and I really don't have any specific memories of Maureen Stapleton in the role. I did see the television televised version that was on a few years back with uh, Tyne Daly in the role, and I had a m- more kind of immediate memory. Of Tyne, and I remember when I saw it that I loved her in the part. I just thought she was pretty divine, really, and uh, so strong and clear and everything. But again, I didn't have any specific memories of what she did, so I didn't feel too haunted by that. Daunted, perhaps, but not haunted. <laughs> in the workshop, when you did it at first, was were many of the same people involved, or were you? Did you do it with a lot of uh, different actors? No, they were a lot of different actors. Actually, um, uh, Matt Doyle, who plays Hugo, and Bill Irwin, who plays Mister McAfee, were both in the workshop, and there were a few adult ensemble members who also did that workshop who are now in the show. But um, in large part, everyone else were different people, and uh, the kids. Um, the teenagers that did the workshop, most of them kind of outgrew the parts by the time it was time to cast. Puberty, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you know, um, Bobby Longbottom, uh, the director, had this great idea of of casting real 
teens for these roles, not um, going older or as some other people and Margaret might Margaret was might not actually choose. the right age when no, she did the film, no, for No, 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 not at all. And there are a lot of really terrific young um, Broadway singers and dancers in their early 20s and things, and that would be one way to go with it. But, you know, Bobby chose to go with real teenagers, and they, they um, uh, range from age 13 to 19 mm. in this production. Well, What's it like being in a cast with that many kids? Your scenes are primarily with John Stamos and Gina Gershon. They are solely with John and Gina and a little bit with Nolan. But I have no contact with either the adult ensemble or the teen ensemble. Huh. I didn't realize that no. it, was, it was that – so you kind of have your own little show within the larger show. I do. It's it's a very particular track that I have. But backstage, of course, you know, I have a really great relationship with everyone in the company. It's a great group of people to work with. Having that many kids around and kids who, as I've, I've read in many cases, have come straight from their high school productions of shows mm-hmm. into being on Broadway as a seasoned theater performer – um, do you get the do you get those times where they say, "Tell us about this" or "What should we think about that"? Or they don't want to know. <laughs> no, <laughs> you're shaking your I, head. I, I, at least I haven't had that experience I, in in this particular instance. I think because there are so many teenagers in this production, um, they are really self sufficient. Hmm. They really. Um, Enjoy one another's company and kind of act as a team and and entertain each other perfectly well and um, and their show and their track kind of they all are ganged together and so you know they're very very bonded and um, no I haven't had any of them coming up to me asking about the old days <laughs> <laughs> or even just about how to have a career but no no. No, I you know because of the kind of refreshing age these kids are they they aren't career centric the way huh. uh, we become you know after we've graduated from college and are you know really worried about um, earning a livelihood and paying our rent etc cetera, etc cetera. and I think our ambitions and priorities shift when we hit our twenties as opposed to when we're fifteen hmm. and thinking about a life in show business. Since you say your your work is almost exclusively with with John and Gina, I mean with John you are you are constantly guilt tripping him, and with Gina you are ever so politely insulting her <laughs> yes. the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> what's what's the dynamic like in terms of building that up in a, in a rehearsal so that you know. I mean, how many times can you hurl the same insult at someone and and make it make it seem new and and have them respond as if it's new? Oh, it's interesting. You know, I don't think of it in terms of guilt tripping Albert <laughs> or or putting Rose down. I mean, these scenes that are in the play are. Uh, situationally, they're very funny, but uh, you know, the writing is. I don't know how else to put it except that it's – you don't see comedy writing like this anymore. It's like classic sketch comedy writing and it's really about um, playing the stakes and and um, the situations in a way that is very precise and clear and brisk and quick. And in some ways, it's it's much more technical than emotional. Hmm. And it's interesting that you say sketch writing because, of course, Michael Stewart, who wrote the book, came out of your show of shows yes. in the 50s. Yes. That, was, that was his training ground. Yes. So and that was others. a great kind of school of comedy writers who came out of that era. I mean, there were a lot of great people who went on to become playwrights who were – from that background and that's really evident in the writing of uh, Bye Bye Birdie, I think particularly in my scenes. Hmm. Yeah. And with Charles Strauss being around, did he – was he around much during rehearsals or did he just come and – Charles and Lee Adams, the lyricist, were mm-hmm. both around occasionally but they weren't 
around constantly at all. Um, they would they would pop in occasionally and watch a few scenes, and certainly when we had run-throughs, they would be there to watch and see how we were doing. But they were both a very gentle, kind of quiet presence in the hmm. rehearsal room, and always, always so kind and supportive. And I think, you know, excited to see their beautiful classic hit come to life again. Well, it is pretty extraordinary when you think of a show that's almost just just shy of 50 years old. Yes. To have some of the original creators still around, still still able to both remember that experience and and go through the new experience. Absolutely. And I I just always whenever I would see them, I would just be so happy. I I felt so fortunate that um we had them in the room and um, and that they were able to see this show revived. Hmm. Well, let's – since we're talking about kids, uh, both <laughs> both the song and the show and the kids and the cast, um, let's talk about how you found your way into theater. Uh, when, uh, when did the bug bite you? Oh, boy. I, you know, I – it goes way, way back for me. I mean, I don't think I was able to put um, a name on it and say, oh, I want to be an actress until I was maybe 10 or so. Mm-hmm. But uh, from I, I grew up on a farm in a rural area in Kansas, and um, my siblings were way older than I, uh, almost grown, and um, – we didn't have neighbors. I didn't grow up in a neighborhood. Mm. And so I was uh, actually a very solitary child and very reliant on my imagination to kind of entertain myself. And um, and I had a very fertile pretend life <laughs> from as my earliest memories. And, um, and so I was assuming characters – from, you know, I think age three on. But it was long about uh, when I was nine or ten, I I think I started to piece together. I remember seeing, I don't know, it was something like Make Room for Daddy or something and seeing Angela Cartwright and thinking, wow, how come that little girl gets to do that? Mm. I'd like to do that. And um, and then, uh, you know, my parents, we didn't have a lot of uh, cultural opportunities and Topeka, Kansas, where I grew up in terms of seeing seeing theater, but occasionally road shows would come through or we would go to Kansas City to see something. And I think it was about that age that they, my parents started taking me to see uh, musicals. And um, I was absolutely captivated by that. And I knew from the first time I saw a musical that uh, being on stage was something that I would like to do very much. Um, I also had an influence in my father in that uh, as a young man, he was an aspiring performer and um, he actually made – he did some summer stock in in the Midwest and then he – made some attempts to break into vaudeville Hmm. and he sang and played the ukulele and um, he wasn't an actor per se but uh, he really loved the performing life and uh, he gave that dream up very early on because it coincided with the depression and his starting a family and it didn't seem at all practical or viable but um, I as a child, remember hearing him talk about those days with great nostalgia and kind of picking up from him that that was, in a way, a dream deferred. Hmm. And um, so I had a very romantic view of what it was to be a performer because of his influence as well. But he wasn't a male Mama Rose. It's not like he was no. saying, oh, Jane, you should do this. No, not but at all. But he was open to it when you expressed interest. Yes. He was very interested that I had an interest. And my mother, um, when I was 12, I I sang as a kid in choir and stuff. And my mother wanted to encourage my singing. And when I was 12, gave me a guitar with that in mind. And Mm. uh, so I started playing folk songs and that sort of thing. And her ultimate fantasy was that I play Maria in Sound of Music. <laughs> I missed that chance. I, n- <laughs> I never got cast as Maria, but you know, um, any of the nuns? <laughs> n- no, I haven't done any you of the nuns. I just haven't done sound of music. <laughs> okay. But 
anyway, uh, you know, so I guess on, on, on a certain level, I was encouraged to um, at least think in terms of singing. And um, but when I was fourteen, I there was another person in my life who kind of I think recognized that I had a spark and a and uh, desire, and she was involved in community theater and uh, got me an audition with the local community theater, and um, I started doing things with them. And so by the time I hit high school, certainly, I was I was already doing plays. And, and it's interesting because you say community theater. Community theater, at least in my experience with it, tends to be adults. Was <laughs> so... As as a kid, it was if if they had a part for a kid, or did you get to play older than you than you were? Well, it was very interesting because this community theater had a little offshoot group that was for teens. Ah, and we did, um, you know, kind of standard classic plays in a way. I mean, community theater fair, I guess you'd say. My first play at fourteen was to play the mother in Enter Laughing. <laughs> My mother said I was very good. <laughs> <laughs> Our mothers always do. Yes, they do. <laughs> but you know, if you can imagine that, but I, I had a ball. I'm doing trying to it. imagine a production of Enter Laughing in in Kansas. <laughs> so. Exactly. I know the whole thing was very far fetched, but you know, we didn't have any problem believing that we could do it. Hmm. It was a it was a really hard working group of uh, adolescents who all were theater nuts and uh, and oh my god I loved that experience so much I remember that was the first time I I got what it was to to get a laugh hmm. and uh, it stopped me in my tracks I mean I I didn't think I was being funny I wasn't trying to be funny I was just saying the lines but the audience thought it was hysterical now it might have had something to do with the fact that I was 14 years old but uh, I instinctively knew when that laugh hit I somehow knew how to hold for it and ride the crest of that wave and come in and top it with the next line and it was it was uh, a watershed moment for me and I knew from then on that that was what I wanted to do with my life. So did you go off to college specifically looking for for theater program? I did. I had one year of liberal arts college because my Mother begged me to please get a teaching degree. Something to fall back on. <laughs> yes, exactly. These, these stories are not unfamiliar no, to so many. I know. No, there's nothing very unique about my life <laughs> no, in any, any way, Howard. But uh, so I had a year of college and I majored in theater, of course, and I aced all my theater classes and got incompletes and everything else. And at the end of that year, I said to my mother, I said, please, wouldn't you let me consider auditioning for an acting conservatory and she said okay and uh, my high school drama teacher who had been very supportive of me uh, found out about a school in Detroit called the Academy of Dramatic Art that had a British faculty and the, the it was a conservatory program and it was based on the RADA model hmm. and it was started by John Fernald had, who had run RADA for a number of years and he brought over a faculty from England from Central School of Drama and Weber Douglas and RADA and this conservatory um, was in existence for about 12 years and I was I think I was in the third or fourth year the class, third or fourth class of the school. And it was a really great training program, very technical, uh, largely based in the classics, hmm. uh, great voice and diction work and uh, movement and mask work and period technique and combat and all those things. And, um, and it was very rigorous. There were 50 of us in the first year, and by the end of our first year, there were only 16 of us hmm. that made up the core of the second year. So it's that classic conservatory thing of Brutal. you have to make the cut That's to right. get into the second year. That's right. Yeah, yeah, hmm. yeah. It was very competitive that way. Um, but it was great training, great, great training. Now, so often we talk to people and they get out of a training program, undergraduate or graduate, the next stop is New York City. Yeah. 
So here, here is where your story is not the average story because yeah. you didn't immediately pack your bags and head for the bright lights. I didn't. I I took the road less traveled, perhaps. I actually I had an opportunity to go to New York at that point. I auditioned for John Houseman at the urging of my mentor in acting school, and he accepted me into the third year of Juilliard with the idea of my going on into the acting company. And this was in the early 70s. This was in the really golden era of the beginnings of the Juilliard acting program. And um, I had also uh, accepted a job my first season of summer stock in a small non-equity company in Illinois and I went off and did that job and um, fell in love with my leading man and he asked me to marry him and I said yes and uh, he his dream was to work and live as an actor in Iowa which is what I did I mean I opted for that and uh, he and I worked in small theater companies for about six years in Iowa and Illinois. In fact, we helped build a theater in Garrison, Iowa, called the Old Creamery Theater Company, which I'm proud to say still exists today. It's an equity theater. Uh, But at that point, it was an abandoned, condemned creamery building in a town, farming town of 200 people. Hmm. And we literally built the the theater from the ground up with our own hands. There were about 12 of us. And to to subsidize this work, we had grants to uh, tour Iowa primarily, but also uh, the Dakotas a little bit too, uh, with children's shows. And we played in, in a Greyhound bus. We traveled across the state and played sometimes two and three towns a day. And we set up all our own sets, struck them all, and also performed. And um, we did that nine months out of the year. It was We stayed in people's homes. It was really, really hard work. But wow. that's what uh, gave us the bread and butter then to go back to this little town and build this theater. Huh. So what kind of – when you did the, the the work at the theater that you built, what kind of – Shows because it sounds like there was a group of you. So yes. was it sort of a collective, and or was there no? There was someone an art- who was- there was an artistic director who mm-hmm. was you know kind of spearheading the whole thing and organizing it, and and there were a couple other people working administratively that organized the group. Um, uh, the way in which the actors worked collectively was putting the children's shows together. We uh-huh. we improv the shows and kind of made them ourselves. But then the seasons that we did in the theater that we built was uh, were mm, we did a kind of a mix of musicals and comedies and um, American dramas. Uh, you know, a fair share of Neil Simon and hmm. and things like Inherit the Wind and. Um, Kaufman and Hart plays huh. and that sort of thing. So at what point did you shift from this nine-month-a-year children's theater, three months a year <laughs> doing your own theater to saying now, you know, now I'm going to look for roles. I'm going to move well, beyond. Well, we did, we did that for a couple of years and then and then uh, we worked for a couple of years in a dinner theater in Des Moines, Iowa where mm-hmm. I did a lot of sex farces and learned a lot about uh, playing comedy in uh, – in, um, extreme circumstances. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how else to put it. <laughs> but all of this was great training ground. And then there was a summer stock theater in Illinois where I worked uh, over a period of five years during that time where I did a really wide range of roles. Um, again, often playing roles that were much older than I and and very challenging, and I did a lot of musicals at that point in that theater, and a lot of big parts in musicals. And anyway, at, uh, after about six years of this life in the Midwest doing theater, um, the marriage dissolved, and that was the point at which I decided to move to New York. And I, I did it probably in uh, had I had more resources, I would have done it differently, but I did what I could. I took a suitcase of clothes and $250 and got on a train in Chicago and went to New York. I knew one person. I'd never been east of Detroit at that point and uh, arrived at Grand Central Station 
and uh, stayed with the one friend I knew and um, for a couple weeks and then found a uh, situation. I was very fortunate, a cat sitting for an actress who was out of town for several months. And so I had an apartment to stay in and I got – Anyone we'd know, not the cat, the actress. <laughs> <laughs> well, she was a wonderful, brilliant actress, um, Polly Rolls, who had uh, a really interesting career. She was the original Vera Charles in the play Auntie Mame. Hmm. Um, yeah, and Polly was gracious enough to allow me to stay in her place and – Look after cats while I kind of got on my feet in New York, and I, you know, I got temp jobs initially, and um, and then started uh, auditioning for regional work, and I I got some regional work going back to my conservatory roots in Detroit uh, to Meadowbrook Theater, and. Um, this was in 1981, I guess, and um, and I joined the union. And um, from working with different directors at Meadowbrook, um, these directors then you know worked other regional theaters, and they would ask me to come and work for them there. Anyway, for uh, about 20 years, this this kind of snowballed, and for over a period of 20 years, I had an apartment in New York but worked regionally. Hmm. And so I would come and go. I'd come into New York for a few weeks or a couple months and sometimes audition for other jobs that would then take me out or people would call me because uh, there was a whole circle of directors that knew me regionally that would call me to go work in places in Hmm. various parts of the country. And um, for the first 15 years, I worked without an agent and I worked – uh, virtually nonstop between nine and eleven months out of the year, huh. um, and supported myself always as an actor, and had this really varied and very rich life in the regions. Um, prim- I worked a lot in the Midwest, in the Detroit area, and in Kansas City, and, and also down in Florida at the Oslo, and then slowly, you know, things. I started working also at Actress Theater of Louisville and um, Wilmington, Delaware, and then upstate New York and Buffalo and Rochester and Jiva and Studio Arena and Syracuse Stage and um, then in Hartford and Princeton and New Haven oh. and you know and uh, it just all kind of one job always fed into the next. Well, it now it sounds like what we would now call you know almost viral marketing because <laughs> it was it was all word of mouth. Is it yeah. all someone saw you, somebody told somebody about you, or somebody worked with you in one place and That's took right. you to another? It's it's extraordinary. Right. And, and I should say, I mean, I'm sitting here with with your resume, which is extensive, and it's impossible to talk about all of these shows, but. Before we began uh, recording, I, I did ask you about some shows that were meaningful to you. Mm-hmm. So I want to ask you about those now since all I got was the names and the places. Mm-hmm. Um, the first one you mentioned was a production of Frankie and Johnny and the Claire de Lune in 1989 at the Oslo. Mm-hmm. Why, why among these copious shows that you did – was this Frankie and Johnny important to you? I think one of the reasons that play will always remain very important to me, uh, being what I guess most people call, for lack of a better term, a character actress, I often play roles that are a departure from who I am. Um, But in the case of the character of Frankie, I felt very close to that character and I, I didn't feel like there was any kind of stretch beyond myself. It was more of a journey inward to discover the role and um, and I also happen to think it's a perfect play. Hmm. <laughs> I I just think that there is not a there's not a false word in that play. The writing is so beautiful and there's something so poignant about the relationship and these two people finding each other in their respective loneliness and uh, and I had a wonderful actor to work with um, named Michael Laird and um, and I think it was I, I was telling you I think I think it was the first production of the play outside of New York hmm. and uh, and it was 
I didn't I didn't I, I haven't often gotten to play romantic leads. And she definitely is that. Hmm. Even though she's atypical in some ways, she's um it's really a a great romance that play and so it was very special to do. If I followed what you were saying about how you approached the show, you said, you know, this was the first time it was all about going inside yourself, that it wasn't about putting on another character. Well, I mean, did, I mean, did you have to live – was this one of those roles that you took home with you at night? I suppose in some ways more than than other roles, huh. which is not to say that I don't draw on myself in everything I do. In of everything. course I do, yeah. you know, but um, – I didn't. I didn't have to um, do any outside research okay. <laughs> to play her. <laughs> I had very strong identification with who this woman was, and uh, so it was really just about bearing myself and and being naked, both literally and figuratively, actually, and um, uh, being ex- in extremely honest and vulnerable. Hmm. about who I was as that woman. Now, you also told me that in the early 90s, you sort of made a stock and trade of playing Shirley Valentine. <laughs> I believe you mentioned four separate productions. Yeah, I wouldn't say stock and trade. But yeah, there was a <laughs> there was a period of about three or four years where it seemed like um, I did that role a lot. And I'm so glad I got to do it a number of times because when you – Go to the lengths that one has to go to to learn a solo piece. It's nice to be able to do it a bit, um, um, and it was it's a beautiful role. You know, mm. it's just a great evening in the theater. I think it's a really great play. I mean, it's a full play. Really, it just happens to be one person um, on stage, but you know, it's it's really this beautiful arc that she goes through and a series of events that are so interesting and and unlike most solo shows you know usually they're an hour to an hour and a half surely valentine's a full two-hour play and Mm. so it was very ambitious initially to learn it and um and so after I had done it the first time, I was really happy to have several opportunities to do it again well let me ask you about those opportunities in did you do it with the same director each time or are no. you doing new productions I did new productions I did it with different directors that's got to be times. fascinating yeah it was interesting because you're bringing the script you're bringing yourself and what you've done before but yeah. it's not as if you're interacting with other actors no in order to find your character that's it's true. still just you yeah. so so how did that work when each time you would have a new director taking you through a role you'd played with success? Well, in the case of each of these directors, they, they respected that I had done all this work previous and so they were open to what I knew about the, the role and they uh, let me educate them in that way. And then after they saw and experienced what – prior knowledge I had of the role, then, you know, they would uh, add suggestions or or thoughts that helped me flesh it out even more. Um, But none of these directors tried to impose a different idea, a basic Mm. idea about who the character was. Mm. I mean, they all hired me because they believed that um, I knew – I knew what I was doing in and the part. So often when I talk to actors who have the opportunity to go back and to play the same role again. Now, this was in a relatively concentrated period of time. Mm. But did you find new things each time you went back to it? Even oh, if yes. Even the hiatus had been short? Always. Hmm. Always. I mean, I, and I've had, I've had the good fortune of repeating – uh, a number of roles over the years, and it's always very interesting to revisit them. Uh, it's not that things change dramatically, but they often deepen. Hmm. Uh, and it's kind of hard to even pinpoint what it is about 
that makes it makes the interpretation go deeper, except for the fact that I have, in the interim, lived X number of <laughs> days and months or years, and uh, I've become more more of of who I am as a person, and I um, have more to bring to the to the process. And um, so, yeah, it's generally been very rewarding to repeat roles. Mm. I enjoy doing it. The other show that you mentioned is a particularly memorable experience was the opportunity to do Death of a Salesman. Yes. Linda Lohman yes. at Missouri Rep. Yes. And, I mean, certainly we hear of Willie Lohman as being one of the great roles, certainly one of the great modern roles for, for an actor to play. Yeah. Is Linda Lohman the same kind of role? Does it, has, does it loom as large, do you think? No. I, not for me. It doesn't. Mm. I mean, there's something actually about Linda that's uh, very uh, – Willie I, is such um, an out there kind of gregarious, varied person. Linda um, is not as uh, fully drawn, I don't think, as as Willie is, um, and therein lies the challenge. But I liked the challenge of hmm. that role. Um, it's a very lonely part, interestingly. I found hmm. um, she never really leaves the house, and she is entirely reliant upon the men in her life, her two sons and her husband, to kind of define her life. Mm. And, and bring the outside world to her? In a way, yes. Mm. And in this, it was, that really mm, was very evident to me in this particular production because the design, uh, the physical design of the production was the house was kind of an island in the center of the stage. And when Biff and Hap and Willie all left to go other places, they were able to exit. But once I entered the stage, there was no way for me to get to the wings. So I literally had to live behind the house when I wasn't in the scenes, hmm. in the dark. Hmm. And then I would go out into the light of the stage and do the scenes and then disappear back into the dark and stay there. And, you know, it's a long play. It's a three-hour play. And I couldn't go off during intermission even. I lived back there. And um, They couldn't have taken you out in a blackout or was this a direct choreo concept? It was never completely black enough to do that. Huh. And um, so, you know, I really experienced that, you know, that the loneliness and isolation of that woman in a way. And that the world only came to you, the world only came along. When the men came into that's right. It. That's and that's how devastating it was when you know things weren't going well. Huh? Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah, it was. It was a very wonderful experience. Well, as I said, it's impossible to do justice to all of the roles and all of the theater companies you've worked with. <laughs> and and I'll just say, you we mentioned Missouri Rep, Peterborough Players, Alabama Shakes, Theater Works up in Hartford, Actors Theater of Louisville, the Wilma, the McCarter, Syracuse. You mentioned Jiva. I mean, it's it's an extraordinary roster of of, of some of the great regional theaters around the country. But you kept that New York apartment. I did. And so, <laughs> as I said in my introduction, to to so many people, it was as if – because, of course, New York – if it doesn't happen in New York, it hasn't happened. It seemed that you came out of nowhere. I know. To turn up in that Barca lounger. Yeah. How did that happen? Because as you said, you didn't have an agent. It was referrals. Mm. I don't think Lee Silverman, I don't see her anywhere here on the resume that Lee said, you know. So tell me about how well came to be. How well happened. Well, um, about I would say three or four years prior to my doing – my beginning the journey with well. I was aligned with that play for four and a half years. Hmm. It was a very long relationship that I had with that play in development and over the various productions we did of it. But prior to that, um, I'd say along about um, 1998, I made the decision, the conscious choice to come in off the road and say no to out-of-town jobs and really focus on trying to work in town 
in New York. And um, and that was a very hard thing to do and it was a scary thing to do to because I didn't know anyone in New York in the industry really. I, a few casting directors but mostly the casting directors that cast for regional things. Um, casting directors didn't know me. New York directors didn't know me. Producers didn't know me. Um, in the mid-90s, I did get agent representation. And so it wasn't that I was without an agent when I made that decision. In fact, my agents were very glad I made the choice. They had been wanting me to stay in New York rather than travel out of town. Um, but for a couple of years after I made that choice, saying no, 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 no to the things that I had always done, um, I couldn't get arrested. I mean, it was a really tough time. I would go up for auditions for things in, in and around the city and I'd get close to them but I wouldn't land them because I, people tend to cast who they know mm-hmm. over people who are unknowns. Um, but I, I did a, a production at the Wilma of Orpheus Descending and a director who worked in New York named Daniel Fish saw me in it, liked me. He cast me in a play that was the inaugural production at the Zipper Theater, a play of Charles Mee's called True Love. And I was doing that play at the Zipper, and Lisa Crone uh, was doing a workshop of this project she was just kind of starting on called Well, and she needed someone to play her mother for a week for this workshop, and someone told her about me, so she came to see the play at the Zipper and asked me to do this workshop. And that was back in 2002. Hmm. And for two years, we did numerous readings and workshops of Well. And at the end of that two years in 2004, we did the off-Broadway production at The Public. And then we did more workshops in the following year and then took it to ACT in San Francisco. And then we did more workshops for the following year of Well. And then we took it to Broadway. So it was a really long trip with Well. But it all came out of Lisa having seen me in a play at The Zipper. And how much did the character you were playing evolve over the course of those many years since the play is certainly rooted in, in partially in, in Lisa's life and that you were playing Lisa's mother? Yeah. I made the conscious decision the first two years I was working on the play not to meet or have any contact with Lisa's mother ah. um, because I didn't want to imitate her. Mm-hmm. I, I just wanted to give – the best representation of her I could. And I really, since Lisa was starring in the play that she'd also written about, she and her mother, I, I had in the room with me the person who could best guide me mm-hmm. in terms of being true to her mother. And so I just relied on Lisa really to let me know how I was doing. Now, I kind of came by the Michigan accent of Lisa's mom, honestly, because I'd gone to school there and I was very familiar with that sound. So that came pretty easily for me. And uh, somehow I was able to intuit off the page what kind of person she was. Uh, But, you know, occasionally Lisa would give me little nudges in one direction or another and say, you know, mom doesn't look at that that way. Why don't you view it this way? And she she was most helpful in terms of kind of worldview and social attitudes and that sort of thing um, in terms of my depiction of her. After we got into production at the public with it, that's when Lisa's mother came to see the play and that's when I first met her. <laughs> and what was that like? It was glorious actually. I, I didn't know she was out there that night. I had asked oh, that to be told. Good. Yeah. But after it was over, she came down. She gave me a big hug and she gave me the best uh, compliment I could have gotten. She said, oh, Jane, she said, I sat there in that theater and I watched you being that woman and I thought, good heavens, even I want to be Anne Crone. <laughs> <laughs> now, well, obviously got a lot of attention and suddenly mm. you were – a new fresh face in the New York acting scene mm-hmm. uh, after an extensive career. I yeah. mean, that, that must have been extraordinary. It was extraordinary. It was. It was a little surreal in a way because um, people were kind of in the industry 
kind of were treating me like an actor savant, like I had just, you know, sprung full blown from the <laughs> the head of Thespis or something. You know, it's like since we haven't heard of you, how did you come to have skills? You well, know? that's sort of – I was certainly being facetious earlier when I said if it didn't happen in New York, then it didn't really happen. As well, far as in a way, New York is the most provincial town – I know of, and especially in the theater world, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, um, it, it's, it, yeah, it's hard to to kind of describe my career to people who don't have an idea of what happens elsewhere in the country in the theater. But, um, yeah, I all of a sudden I was a discovery. Hmm. It was a, a very um, exciting and wonderful and kind of odd thing. You know, I was 52 years old when I had my Broadway debut. Hmm. And I have to say, having seen well originally at the public, where there was no curtain, no proscenium, you entered the theater and there you were in the chair (laughs) from the moment we walked in, Hmm. there was – I think that play in some ways benefited – It's. It's a starring role. They mm. could have easily turned mm. to a name actress, but was so remarkable, I think, for, for some of us, at least those of us who hadn't seen you before, was we didn't know anything yeah. of your work and therefore in a way that rarely happens with a performer at a certain point in their life – you were totally new and you were that character. That's all we knew about you. Yes, that's true. And that really – It worked. only happens once. <laughs> yeah, no, but that worked to the play's advantage, yeah. I think. And I, originally, it was my idea when we did these readings and things, I said, you know, to Lee, the director, I said, you know, I just feel funny because this woman spends so much of her life in this uh, lazy boy because of her ill health. It feels so funny to me to walk on as the actress and have the audience see me sit down in the chair and get in a position. I said, can I just, before the audience comes in, just be in the chair and napping? And she said, sure. So we always did it that way in the readings. And by the time we got to production, it just seemed like that was the only way to start the play, Hmm. was to have the audience walk in on and napping in her chair. And, uh, you know, it it was... um, by the time the the lights went up, I think the audience was just kind of used to seeing me there and <laughs> didn't question the reality somehow. It hmm. was – it was, and if they'd had a known actress in the role, uh, I don't know whether you could have had that experience. Hmm. Now, suddenly, because things were happening fast and also because of these gaps in time, I may not have the chronology right, but um, you were – you went out to Chicago to do a show with Steppenwolf, which mm-hmm. is which is pretty heady stuff. There's a large acting community in Chicago. Mm-hmm. They like to work within their own. Steppenwolf itself is a yeah. company. Yeah. Um, you went out there to do The Pain and the Itch. Right. Yeah, that was a very lucky break for me. I, I was called to audition for this play at Steppenwolf and uh, it turned out uh, – Bruce Norris, who wrote The Pain and the Itch, had – I think when uh, they originally talked about producing it at Steppenwolf, they uh, had planned on using um, one of their company members in the role. And then um, uh, she wasn't able to do it because she got something else. And so they decided to go outside the company and they came in and, and read some people and I was one of the people called in. And so I got cast in it and got to go do the play. And then it was subsequently done at Playwrights Horizons and I got to do it in New York as well. Hmm. Now, we've mentioned musicals. We, of course, started talking about the current production of Bye Bye Birdie and you've alluded to the fact that you did a lot of musicals at when, one point at yeah. one point in your career. But in the midst of all of this newfound recognition here in New York, you went into Wicked as Madame Morrible. In <laughs> fact, you've done two stints in it, I believe. I have. Um, I loved reading somewhere that you had first met Joe Mantello <laughs> when he was in the chorus of a production <laughs> Of Hello, Dolly, in which you were Dolly. It's so true. He was one of the waiters. Uh. (laughs) Uh, It was at this little summer stock theater in Illinois uh, back in 1980. And um, Joe was very young. I think he was 18. (laughs) And uh, a wonderful young actor. 
uh, he also played my son in Life with Father that summer, and he also played uh, the boy Alan Strang in uh, the production of Equus that we did. And he was brilliant in it, and all of us knew that we were working with a very special talent, even hmm. though he was quite young at that point. Um, but anyway, yeah, he was he was one of the waiters in the production of Hello Dolly. We did that summer, so he thought of me always as this kind of musical theater leading lady because I was older <laughs> than he. I was in mm-hmm. my my I think I was twenty six or seven at the time, and so I must have seemed ancient to him. <laughs> but um, yeah, so he he had memory of me as being this musical theater person, and and he saw me and well, and um, actually I had um, done a workshop with him prior to or prior to that of uh, a man of no importance. Mm. He had called me in for that very nicely. So when I was doing Pain in the Itch at Playwrights Horizons, I got this call to come and do Madame Morrible and Wicked. You know, it was just out of the blue. Totally out of the blue. I, no one could have been more shocked than I. Huh. And going into already a, an enormous success, but a production, <laughs> presumably, of the size that in your extensive career... The likes of which I'd never known. Mm. It, it's totally true. And the learning curve was huge for me going into Wicked. And, but very exciting, I have mm. to say. I mean, it was just... I felt like Alice in Wonderland going into that show. Um, and everyone was very welcoming and helpful. And, uh, you know, it was the standard, you know, kind of replacement put-in process. I had, I think, 10 days of rehearsal and then was thrown into the costume and out there on stage with all those great Broadway musical people. And I have to ask, presumably Wicked is one of those shows, although the stage door is not easily found at the Gershwin, for those who don't know where it is, but was this perhaps the first time that you would come out of the stage door and find people wanting wanting your autograph? Oh. Were there children dying to meet well, you? Well, you know, yeah, I, yes. The, the fan base at Wicked is amazing. Mm-hmm. Really amazing. I mean, the, there's nothing like a Wicked fan, really. They, they are so the kids who see that show are so devoted to it, um, and yeah, they wanted my autograph. <laughs> but in truth, you know, really, those kids they want to meet Alphaba and Glinda. <laughs> you know, Madame Morrible's not it. <laughs> okay. Um. You talked earlier about how wonderful it is to do a solo piece, and yeah. you had the opportunity to do obviously a much shorter than um, than Shirley Valentine piece in one of the pieces that made up Paul Rudnick's The New Century. Yes, um, and I'd just like to ask, how did you find that that character who, when the when the piece starts? seems really sort of dippy and nothing going on and as it goes along it 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 deepens in a very interesting way yeah no it was a fantastic part and uh it was so much fun to do and so interesting to work on you know i had um just a tremendous amount of feeling for that character i yeah, she does seem dippy and everything. But, you know, having grown up in the Midwest, I've known a lot of housewives who are into crafts. And um, a lot of the women who do those things, whether you have – one has an appreciation for the crafts form or not, um, I really understand the the desire to create something and, and – um, and that was that was what this woman was about. She had a very honest, creative nature, and um, you know, perhaps the things she created were not to everyone's taste. But I, I never, I always took her very seriously. Actually, mm. you know, I, I didn't judge her for her crafts. Mm. <laughs> um, but Paul wrote that element of the character very cleverly, and and. Um, Wittily, yeah, it was very funny the the material that I had to deal with. But ultimately, that that monologue or that scene in the play was really about something, as you say, much deeper. And it was uh, about a woman dealing with the deep grief and loss of a son, and um, mm-hmm. to 
the AIDS epidemic and to a lifestyle that she really didn't have any kind of frame of reference or understanding of and her trying to come to grips with that and reach a deeper understanding, which she does. Yeah, yeah. And in the final piece of of the show, when all of the characters come together, she's shown to perhaps be the wisest one of all. Yes, yes, I think so. So interesting. Now, what do you say – now, you'd worked with Lee Silverman before, but what do you say when a director calls you up and says, (laughs) I'd like you to play a child? Well, and I'm speaking of Coraline at MCC. Yes, I'll tell you, you know, because it was Lee Silverman, I really thought long and hard about it. I mean, if because I have such uh, deep respect for her, um, I when she said, uh, actually, initially, she said, I'm going up to Dartmouth with David Greenspan and Stephen Merritt to work on this project called Coraline. And I, I'm thinking of you in terms of the title role, Coraline. And I said, oh, who is Coraline? She said, she's a nine-year-old girl. And I thought, wow, you know. And she, but she handed me the novel and uh, she said, just read the book and tell me what you think. And so I read Neil Gaiman's children's book, uh, which is a wild and wonderful read. And um, – you know, I wasn't sure I could do it or fulfill it, but I thought if Lee thinks I can, I need to try this at least and give it a whirl. Unfortunately, I was not able to go to that um, weekend and work with them that time. But <clears throat> about a year later, an official workshop uh, was organized uh, again at the Zipper Theater. I miss that place. I'm Mm. so sorry that space closed down. I thought it was an extraordinary part of New York. But anyway, uh, we did a workshop at the Zipper and it was a full out um, two and a half weeks, I think, we worked on it and and heard the music and learned some of the music and started working with the orchestrations, which were all done on uh, toy piano and prepared piano and... Uh, Lee's ideas for the the piece were phenomenal and David Greenspan was so amazing and exciting to work with uh, as an actor and also he was the book writer on it. So the whole project felt very satisfying to work on and so when it, it finally went to production um, – I guess it was a year later. We did another three-week workshop of it, and then we went into official rehearsal of it. It was very exciting to work on that project, and I felt very honored to be entrusted with the role of Coraline. So this brings us back around to your current appearance in Bye Bye Birdie, and we've kept coming up mentioning musicals throughout this. Joe Mantello thought you were a musical leading lady <laughs> back many years ago. and But but your experiences, certainly since you've come to New York, Madame Morrible isn't one of the big musical roles in, in Wicked. No. And in Bye Bye Birdie, you don't even get a song. Uh, uh, no, no, no. So no. When, when can be, we be looking for perhaps your cabaret act at the Cafe Carlisle? Or, <laughs> or do you really want to put it out there that you'd like to be doing some musicals? I would... I would enjoy doing more musicals. I mean, I've always, I've always felt that uh, I, I'm happiest as an actor when I can do a wide variety of things. So, musicals are one of the things that I would love to do. Hmm. Uh, I've never wanted to do ex- musicals exclusively, um, but uh, I would love to to sing more, start singing again. Uh, the the thing at the Carlisle is never going to happen. <laughs> I, I don't have those kinds of chops. Never did. Never will. But, uh, you know, to do the occasional character song, I could do that. <laughs> and on that note, let me say, Jane Howdyshell, now in Bye Bye Birdie, thanks for being with us today on Downstage oh, Center. Thank you, Howard. It's been fun.
Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Chad Bernhard. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is recorded in the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from americantheaterwing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter at The Wing, and follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, we hope you'll consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit the website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center and the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theatre.